It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. I'm Brett Baer. I'm Maria Bartiromo. I'm Brian Kilmeade, and this is the Fox News Rundown. Tuesday, May 24th, 2022. Alisa Brady. The political spotlight shines on more states today in a primary season amplified by national issues, big spending, and in some cases, high turnout. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure out this is not a good issue climate for the Democrats. And the sort of interesting races and conflicts, there are some on the Democratic side, but they tend to be loaded on the Republican side. So that's driving turnout as well. I'm Dave Anthony. There is another virus that's making news coming to America. There's a couple very clear distinctions between this and COVID. First of all, monkeypox is not highly contagious. And I'm Jimmy Fallon. I've got the final word on the Fox News rundown. The road to the midterm elections winds through four states today with primaries featuring some familiar names, both on and off the ballot. I'm a Christian, a conservative and a Republican in that order. And I am here to support Brian Kemp in tomorrow's Republican primary. Former Vice President Mike Pence headlining a primary eve rally for Georgia's Republican governor, who has several challengers, including former Senator David Perdue. This always was a race between people and politicians. We've been outspent many times. Perdue is backed by former President Donald Trump, who encouraged him to run after Kemp didn't side with Trump's election fraud claims in 2020. Many other races have interesting storylines, too, including former Trump press secretary Sarah Sanders running for Arkansas governor. In Texas, one of two runoffs pits the state attorney general, Ken Paxton, against land use commissioner George P. Bush. And there are crowded primaries for Senate and governor in Alabama. More on those in a moment. But we begin with that closely watched governor's race in Georgia. Kemp and Purdue have both have kind of considerable histories um, and pedigrees in Georgia. Fox News decision desk member and pollster Darren Shaw. In past elections have shown they're, they're excellent vote getters. But uh, all of the polling information that we've been involved with has has shown that Kemp really has a pretty considerable lead. I I think our last poll had Kemp up uh, 60 to 28, you know, and that's a a week old. But still, that's a, you know, 32 point margin here. And and with Kemp significantly above the 50 plus one threshold, that is a little surprising. But maybe, you know, buried in that poll was was something I thought was even more interesting is that 72 percent of Republican voters view Kemp favorably and only 56 percent viewed Purdue favorably. 56 percent favorability in, in your own party's primary is a pretty, you know, surprising number, I think. Um, I think those of us who are outside Georgia underestimate sometimes the policy and personal baggage that accrues when they've been around for a while. There's another small thing that has surprised me that I think has contributed to this is um, that Kemp has simply dominated the airwaves. And so I don't know that Purdue has spent an adequate amount of time playing up his history and kind of highlighting his strengths. I think he's been defined by, you know, both Kemp and the media and not to his advantage. Mm-hmm. There have been many negative ads in many races <laughs> in this uh, <laughs> primary season, and a lot of times they are blamed mainly on outside groups, super PACs. Do voters make that distinction or do they just end up blaming the campaigns? And does that ultimately run the risk of costing votes? 
It's, it's a great question. Um, we found a couple of things. The first is that voters rarely discriminate between and amongst ad sources. Um, even though, you know, the most recent campaign, Federal Campaign Act is uh, mandated that you say I'm candidate X and I support this ad. Um, voters don't tend to, you know, identify the sources and, and discount or accept based on the sourcing. Now, having said that, there's also a pretty strong branch of research that shows the super PACs come in really strongly with an ideological agenda. They're, they're pushing issue positions. And so, you know, so I'm not certainly not claiming that some of them aren't uh, attack ads and don't go after candidates personally. But what they really tend to do is try to draw issue contrasts. So a um, little more subtle than you might think, given, you know, the proliferation of money and especially interest group money recently. And perhaps all of that spending on issue-related ads could be a factor in turnout, one would imagine. We have seen primaries in numerous states so far where Republicans seem to be having significantly more turnout. Is that a red flag for Democrats, or is it just because GOP races have been getting more attention? Yes and yes. <laughs> it's absolutely a red flag. Uh but the reality is that, you know, these dynamics tend to be in place fairly early. They're not that hard to see. Um, they weren't that hard to see in 2010 and 2014 and 2018. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure out this is not a good issue climate for the Democrats. And the, the sort of interesting races and conflicts, there are some on the Democratic side, but they tend to be loaded on the Republican side. So that's driving turnout as well. Um, you know, Georgia is a good case. right? Uh, almost all of the action is on the Republican side. Georgia isn't a great case in the sense that I think Democratic turnout in, in the fall is going to be really, really good. Um, the, the Democrats have gotten excellent in Georgia at mobilizing voters, irrespective of kind of the short term forces. This is a side note. Republican efforts to shape or reshape uh, voting systems and to limit mail in voting. In some ways, I think the Democrats have a tremendous, you know, in crass political terms, a tremendous issue here. And they have really leveraged it in the last couple of election cycles, which is one of the reasons, despite all the claims and arguments and speculation about how these laws are going to depress turnout, the exact opposite has happened. Criticism of Georgia's election law got so heated that baseball pulled the all-star game out of Atlanta last year. But early turnout has broken records in Georgia. Still, two-time Democratic candidate for governor Stacey Abrams now says she's disappointed with the state on several other issues, including its economic, crime and health rankings. I am tired of hearing about being the best state in the country to do business when we are the worst state in the country to live. She could face a rematch with Governor Kemp, who told Fox News Monday he's focused for now on the GOP primary. But make no doubt, we are getting up every day doing all that we can to make sure she's never our governor or our next president. But we got to take care of business tomorrow to be able to do that. Two runoff races in Georgia are what gave Democrats control of the U.S. Senate just after the 2020 presidential election. Now one of those senators, Raphael Warnock, is seeking a full term, while on the Republican side, former football star Herschel Walker, backed by former President Trump, is facing Republican primary challengers without the same name recognition. I mean, I was, I'm of a certain age. I remember Herschel Walker when he was at the University of Georgia and then when he was with the Cowboys. And that, that's a big name for people of a certain age. Uh, you know, Warnock has proven to be a pretty good candidate. I think in 2020, you know, you mentioned the double-barreled race, right? Uh, you had John Ossoff and Raphael Warnock both taking those seats, uh, Ossoff winning the long 
seat and then Rob Warnock winning the special and then now having to defend. I think that's going to be interesting to watch is the extent to which Warnock, who will be running in this instance, really with Stacey Abrams as a gubernatorial candidate. So two African-American candidates, do, will they have the same kind of appeal? Will they be able to peel off these swing voters? That's really the question long term. And then on the other hand, you know, can Walker, you know, an African-American who's had some businesses, has a lot of notoriety, can he win those supporters back? The Alabama Senate race is for the seat left open by the retirement of Republican Senator Richard Shelby. His former chief of staff, Katie Boyd Britt, is one of six candidates in the GOP primary. Um, But six-term congressman Mo Brooks is getting maybe the most attention after winning and then losing a Trump endorsement, mainly after saying Republicans should move on from the 2020 election. But he's still been showing pictures of himself at the January 6th rally right before the Capitol riot. He's still running as MAGA Mo. Can he pull off this primary? Well, the the sequencing here is really interesting because you're right. Trump initially endorsed uh, Mo Brooks. But then uh, Katie Britt jumped into the race. Um, and then the other candidate I'm watching is uh, is Mike Durant, who is the uh, the former Army helicopter pilot whose capture in Somalia was part of the Black Hawk Down movie. And I, I think he's poured almost $10 million into this campaign. So, um, so you had Durant and Britt kind of eclipsed Brooks fairly, you know, quickly. And Trump withdrew his endorsement maybe one or two weeks after um, Britt and Durant surged past Brooks in the polls. And so there are a lot of people who think that what Trump is doing here is kind of trying to preserve his record of endorsement success. Um, so anyway, I think the last poll I, I saw had um, Britt at 31, Brooks at 27, Durant at 25, which makes it likely nobody's going to receive a majority. And so the top two move to a, a runoff, which I think is June 21st, if, if that happens. What about Alabama Republican Governor Kay Ivey? She has, I think, eight primary challengers. Why so many? Is that wide field um, a reflection of, you know, discontent with her policies within the party? Yes, I I think, um, you know, there have been reports ever since Kay Ivey took uh, office that uh, Trump wasn't happy with her. I got, what was that? There was a small episode that, that Trump didn't like it because there was a state commission that wouldn't allow Trump to hold a rally on a, a, a historic battleship in Mobile. Um, a couple of little small dust ups like that. But I, I think it's more kind of suggestive of just the, the fissures within the Republican Party and how they play out in a state where the Republicans are kind of dominant. Um, and I think, I, again, I'm looking uh, right now at the averages. She's at about 47 percent. James is at 17, Blanchard at 12, but 13% are undecided. Um, So she's kind of within range of 47, but her having to move to a runoff would be, I I think, a great disappointment to her and her supporters. President Biden and some of his officials and other Democratic lawmakers um, have been really launching a full court press on Republicans in general, using this phrase, ultra mega agenda. Could that spell trouble for Republican candidates down the road, or is everything else going to be drowned out by the financial struggles that so many people are having? Yeah, I I think, you know, it's a playbook out of most incumbent campaigns generally, which is if if circumstances and short-term forces don't favor you, try, try, try to make it a contrast. Don't make it a referendum, make it a contrast. So, So what they're trying to obviously do is say, 
This isn't a thumbs up or a thumbs vote down on uh, how the Biden administration has handled immigration and crime and the economy. It is, in fact, a comparison between our agenda, you know, the Biden agenda, and these Republicans. And remember, the Republicans are captures of Trump and MAGA. Um, you know, the thing that's interesting, of course, is, is that despite such a favorable climate for the Republicans, the, the pickup opportunities in the House and especially in the Senate are kind of slim. You know, just the, the sorts of places where you actually have competitive elections right now, there aren't too many of them. And they, they skew a little bit so that the Republicans are having to defend um, you know, just to kind of keep their current position, not many opportunities to pick up. One other kind of big picture question for you along those lines, and that is in states where you have Democratic incumbents like Arizona and Nevada who have kind of bucked their party on certain issues, and they've taken some national heat from that from the party. But could that earn them more support with their constituents? Yes, I, I think that's unquestionable. You know, I think one of the things that's been underrated in recent elections is when you're in a state like in Arizona or even to a lesser extent of Georgia, and you still feel like you're the minority party if you're Democrat, and you're trying to run against a candidate who's you know essentially a member or representative of the majority party, and ultimately, if you're up for re-election, and you can actually say with a straight face, hey, you know, I'm not simply representing the interests of my state, I will buck the party in order to do that. I think they're actually positioning themselves much better, much more effectively than candidates who, or I should say office holders, who simply cave in at the end and vote the party line. Pollster Darren Shaw, a member of our Fox News Decision Desk, thank you very much for your time. My pleasure. Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz Podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. This is Jimmy Fallon with your Fox News commentary coming up. Just what nobody wants to hear. There is yet another virus that's reached the U.S., monkeypox. It is something that everybody should be concerned about. President Biden said that over the weekend while in Japan after the first few American cases surfaced. Then he later clarified. We've had this uh, monkeypox in the larger numbers in the past, number one. Number two, we have vaccines to care for, to take care of it. So unlike COVID, monkeypox is not new. Related to smallpox, which was eradicated in the U.S. decades ago, commonly only still found in Africa. We've seen a few cases in Europe over the last five years, just in travelers. But this is the first time we're seeing cases across many countries at the same time uh, in people who have not traveled uh, to to the endemic regions in Africa. Dr. Rosamund Lewis is head of the World Health Organization's smallpox secretariat. In this outbreak, there are dozens of cases from the U.S. to Canada, Europe to Australia... People who have monkeypox do develop a rash, and that rash, um, if it's con- if you touch it, uh, that can be con- contagious. Now the WHO is looking into if it's being sexually transmitted between men, though senior advisor Andy Searle warns. This is not a gay disease, as some people in social media have, have attempted to, to label it. That's just not the case. So should we all be worried? 
And I think it's something to be aware of, and it appears to be clustered in a, a subgroup of individuals where they should have a heightened sense of awareness. But no, I don't think so. Dr. Marty McCary is a professor at Johns Hopkins University and a Fox News medical contributor. People who have raw memories from the COVID pandemic should know that we really don't believe that monkeypox has the ability to become a pandemic. Monkeypox, it's it's a scary sounding thing. Nobody wants monkeypox, it sounds awful. What it, it, it's, know, it's part of the smallpox family, is that what this is? That's right, it is a sister to smallpox, but less uh, dangerous, that has a mortality rate that ranges from one to 10%, but this strain is believed to be around 1%. It actually was described in monkeys in 1958, but since then really has had a mode of transmission of rodents to humans, but that doesn't sound as exotic as monkeypox. Right, right, so in Africa, if you're bitten by a rodent, a rat or something, is that how you would get it? Yes, that's the vehicle by which it crosses over from an animal reservoir to humans. There was a bit of an outbreak just limited to animals in the past in the United States. It was imported rodents, which then infected uh, prairie dogs. Okay, but in this case, this is a rare outbreak because so far they don't believe that these people were necessarily in Africa and and, and there's human to human spread here. This is not like COVID, though, right? We can't just get it through the air. There's a couple very clear distinctions between this and COVID. First of all, monkeypox is not highly contagious. It is also not spreading during the incubation period. That is the time when you feel good before you get sick, when you actually have the virus. That was how COVID really spread quickly. It was the asymptomatic transmission among people who felt great. They didn't know they had it. Mm -hmm. Now, with monkeypox, you can get flu-like symptoms, and there's a characteristic rash 100% of the time marked by these vesicles or lumps in the skin. Now, it appears to be there. there's a cluster in a subpopulation of gay individuals. It's probably not limited to that population, but the UK is now issuing an advisory among males with sexual activity with other males, and they're urging awareness, specifically looking for a rash um, as something that doctors and individuals should be aware of. The CDC is also now uh, issuing an advisory saying doctors should look for a rash in people with recent travel to areas where there have been cases. And they also, the CDC is now warning of uh, intimate interaction among gay individuals when one has a rash that appears to be a risk factor. Obviously, somebody might think, oh, this is how AIDS started in the 1980s. Gay and bisexual men were blamed and then it spread and we had a a horrible disease that it still isn't eradicated. This is not the same, right? Well, for one thing, we have a vaccine that we believe works. It's the smallpox vaccine. It has an efficacy of about 85% in general. And we stopped giving it as a country in 1972. Now, there's been talk that maybe we should gear up and get this vaccine, not for mass vaccination, but perhaps as an option for individuals who are high risk if cases continue to expand. But right now, we expect this to be fairly limited given we've had uh, monkeypox in the past. And we do see it uh, in, in a very go this sort of limited course that it's taken in the past. So in bottom line, this is not, in your view, going to be any massive outbreak in the United States at all. No, look, I think we probably have a couple dozen cases that are going to surface in the next few weeks. 
But I don't see this becoming epidemic in the United States, and it does appear to be difficult to transmit. It's an inefficient transmitter as a virus. So I don't think it's something we need to uh, worry about on a day-to-day basis. I wouldn't recommend doing anything different in your day-to-day lives. All right, Dr. McCary, let's switch to COVID. It's been spreading more lately. It's up five weeks in a row on the Johns Hopkins tracker, nearly 800,000 cases last week. That's the most in a week in three months. I want you to listen what the White House COVID response coordinator, Dr. Ashish Jha, told ABC's this week. We have a lot of infections out there. It's still quite disruptive. And 300 people a day are still dying of this disease. That's way too much. Do you agree? Do you think this is the no. start of a wave? No or no? Well, you just said no. Look, the- this this I should wait for you to. No, I know. That's fine. So look, yes, we are seeing a wave of infection, but no, we are not seeing that mortality on a daily basis because those statistics don't delineate those who die with COVID versus for COVID. And same with the hospitalization numbers. So we are seeing inflated statistic and statistics getting quoted. I do think that people should be aware that this is the equivalent of a bad common cold season or a bad flu season where almost everybody you know seems to get it or know someone who's gotten it. I think there's going to be parts of the country where 15 to 25 percent of everybody you know is going to get this infection. It appears to be ubiquitous. The good news is natural immunity appears to be effective, at least effective in reducing the risk of serious complications. Is it harder to track cases and infections nowadays? I mean, so many people have at-home tests, so they may not tell anybody that they got a positive. They just stayed home or something. That's right. Probably we're picking up one in 10 tests because of home testing. So the case numbers are a lot higher. But remember, during a bad flu season, we might see 15 or 20 percent of the entire U.S. population get the flu. Now, we've been oddly complacent about the flu for years. So we just need to use common sense practices. If you're sick, stay home. If you've been around someone and you think you've been exposed, wear a high quality mask around others or stay your distance. Okay, I wanted to talk to you about the vaccines. There's on the last several days, there's news dealing with children. First, this week, Pfizer is submitting data to the FDA showing that they have three small doses for kids six months to just under five as effective, and they want to get approval. This is the only age group where they're not being vaccinated yet. What do you make of of, of this attempt to go for the kids under five? Um, well, kids under five, uh, there's no clinical evidence that the vaccine has Uh, real efficacy that's substantial. What they're seeing is just antibody levels go up. And they're saying, if we see the antibody levels go up, then it's probably going to help kids. But most kids have had COVID. 75% have had it as of February. So we've got to ask ourselves, do we believe natural immunity works or not? And the data shows it does. Okay. So you're you're kind of, if a parent of a three-year-old came to you and said, if this gets approved, should I get the shot for my child? Would you say no? I would say yes if the kid has any comorbid condition, but otherwise the case is not compelling. And in the five through 11 year olds, the CDC is recommending a booster now. Again, that goes against a lot of the data that's out there. You know, I I have in front of me this this Daily Mail article. It quotes you, Dr. McCary, as being very critical of a CDC advisory panel that approved these booster shots for kids aged 5 to 11, and you you, you kind of called them out as a kangaroo court. What's your issue with this, with this panel and with this whole booster for the kids that age? 
Well, Dave, the nation's top vaccine experts sit on the FDA Vaccine Advisory Committee. That committee has inexplicably been bypassed for most booster decisions in young people because they're not on board with it. They've made public statements. So what they did is bypass the experts at the FDA and put it in front of a court, basically a committee at the uh, CDC. That committee is made up of public health individuals, including an obstetrician, family medicine doctors, a different type of uh, expertise than lives at the FDA committee. And they recommended the booster shot for 24 million kids, five through 11, ignoring natural immunity. And they based it on no clinical data. Instead, a study of 140 children in that age group who had an antibody bump after the booster. And so many people are saying in the medical profession, like this is not the proper scientific process now. And if you listen to the discussion at that CDC panel where they strongly recommended the booster for five through 11 year olds, they actually said one of the major uh, values was having simplicity in the messaging. I think the American public are fed up with the idea of just do what we say and they want the hard facts. They want it straight. People are hungry for honesty. All right, let's go. Adults. OK, I'll, I'll give my own example. I got a booster shot about six months ago. Should I? Should people in the same boat as me? Should we consider a second booster? Look, I think people have to accept a little bit of risk and the risk of a mild common cold like illness um, is perhaps something that we need to learn to live with. Um, we can use some basic hygiene pr practices, but let's be honest, COVID is ubiquitous and inevitable at this state with the current strains and dodging it is uh, almost a futile activity in many situations. Now, the one person who dissented in the recent uh, CDC vote on boosters was Dr. Talbot of Vanderbilt University. And she said something I thought that was very powerful. She said, I don't think, uh, she questioned the sustainability of giving vaccines every six months and says, I don't think that's going to work. And I have talked to many uh, uh, physicians who agree and say, look, we can't boost our way out of exposure to this virus. So in the end, I mean, I, I, I'm told that my coverage, my vaccine will wane over time. So I should just let it let it go. Or will I always have something? You will always have the protection against severe illness. Then that may wane a tiny bit, but it's excellent long term in okay. the time that it's been studied. It wanes a tiny bit, but it's still very solid. And I think that's the message we've lost is this was always about flattening the curve and reducing hospitalization and death. It was not instituting martial law against mild illness or trying to vaccinate and boost people frequently to avoid them from acquiring a milder version of the virus. Dr. Marty McCary, Johns Hopkins professor, Fox News medical contributor. Thank you so much as always. We appreciate it. Thanks, Dave. the news now you can with instant updates from fox news for amazon alexa just say alexa play news from fox in fox news it's the latest when you need it on demand from fox news and amazon alexa rate and review the fox news rundown on apple podcasts or wherever you listen it's time for your fox news commentary jimmy Fallon. What's on your mind? So a photo has gone viral of hundreds of private jets sitting on the runway in Davos, Switzerland, where world leaders are gathering to discuss economic issues and climate change. 
Now, the crazy part is the photo was tweeted by the organizers of the conference, meaning they showed the jets on the runway to announce that everyone had flown in to kick off the climate change conference. But taking 100 private jets to your climate change conference is like opening your clean water convention with an oil spill. It's like opening an alcohol intervention with a keg stand. The point being, it's the complete opposite of what you're supposedly there to do. Like Earth to climate people, if you want people to take your gloom and doom predictions seriously, first they have to take you seriously, which is why climate change will continue to be a tough sell until their habit of flying private jets changes. And anyone else who tells you otherwise is just plain nuts. Be sure to listen to Fox Across America with me, Jimmy Fallon, weekdays from noon to three on the Fox News app and foxacrossamerica.com. You've been listening to the Fox News Rundown. Rundown. Stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com. Fox News Radio On Demand on the Fox News app. Download the app and just click listen. When you swipe left, you can listen to your favorite Fox News talk shows live. Swipe right for the latest Fox News Radio newscasts on demand. Fox News Radio on the Fox News app. Download it today. Hi, everybody. It's Brian Kilmeade. I want you to join me weekdays at 9 a.m. East as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and, of course, what you think. Listen live or get the podcast now at briankilmeadeshow.com.